Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to church today. My name is Tim, if we've never met, and it's uh, great to be gathered with you and the rest of the church this morning for worship. And uh, I'm assuming there's a lot of other people watching at home today because there's a storm coming, so good morning to you as well. I'm glad that you can be joining us in this way today. Uh, It's a great morning to be gathered together. We're celebrating five baptisms together this morning, three in this service and two in the next service if you want to stick around for that. And uh, Pastor Larry is back from Uganda, finally. And uh, Pastor Steve Holstein is coming off sabbatical. So we're running at full strength for the first time in, I don't know, a long time. And my mom is here. So this is a good morning, okay? (laughs) With with all that said, you know, it's been a really, uh, another, uh, a really tough week for the country. And uh, especially if you have kids in elementary school, I've talked with a number of you and for myself, for my wife and I, it's been really hard to watch the news this week. As, um, you know, churches in Buffalo this week are uh, observing funerals for people killed in a racially motivated hate crime. We have another uh, school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. So right now, uh, we're in the same time zone right now in Texas, there are churches gathered trying to help one another make sense out of what's happened this week. And uh, I'd imagine they're full. And I would imagine that their pastors and their people are really, really hurting and really, really confused. And, you know, we we talked about this back when we were teaching through Corinthians. We talked about this when the church gathers together uh, in the name of Jesus and under the authority of his word, unique things happen. It's not that God is only at church, but that unique things happen and he speaks in unique ways. And so uh, we want to take some time to pray together for each other. We're going to pray for each other. We're going to pray for our community and schools here, and we're going to pray for, especially for Texas this morning, okay? So even if this is your first time in church, by the way, some of you are here to watch someone's baptism or something. Maybe you haven't been in church in a long time. I don't know, but uh, we want to invite you to join us and to uh, participate at the level you're comfortable doing, but let's, let's go to prayer right now. Would you bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, Thank you that we can call on you in that way as our Father. You have said to come with everything in our hearts and our minds, and so we do that this morning. Would you take a moment right where you are, wherever you're seated, seated, would you just pray uh, for the person on your right and your left this morning? Would you just pray for them, give thanks for them, give thanks for their lives, and ask God to meet with them and speak to them this morning? I would imagine that everyone here has some connection to a teacher, a student, a school in this uh, area. Would you pray right now? Would you just ask God uh, to do good work and to give wisdom to teachers, administrators, school leaders, and ask God to be showing himself powerfully to students right now? And if you know them by name, would you pray for them by name right now?
Father, we, uh, we come to you this morning to pray also for our brothers and sisters gathered together in Texas. God, we ask that you would give pastors and church leaders wisdom right now, that you would fill those churches with power in your spirit, that you would open your word uh, with clarity this morning, that you would mend and heal and work in broken hearts. We ask, God, that you would take what was meant for evil and turn it to good. Use it for the salvation of many. Give our government leaders wisdom. God, would you grant us just laws? Would you lead us during this time? Father, for those families and parents who are mourning the loss of children this morning, we ask for mercy. God, would you just allow that, uh, that our, our own schools here in this region, our schools and communities would be protected from this? And God, that you would use this time to help students especially to see that there is something deeply wrong with humanity that only the gospel can address. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you for praying. We're continuing a teaching series this morning called The Stories We Tell, and we're going to be uh, in the Old Testament book of 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. I don't know if I've ever gotten to say that at the start of a sermon yet, but that'll be on page 311 this morning if you want to turn there. Uh, in the Bibles under the chairs in front of you there. In this teaching series, we've been trying to look more closely each week at what exactly happens when someone says yes to Jesus. We've been talking about redemption, justification, forgiveness. Last week, we talked about adoption and what exactly those words mean and what do the death and resurrection of Jesus have to do with those things. We believe as a church that the, the gospel, the essential message of Jesus Christ can change anyone and anything. We believe that it is the power of God not just to salvation but to renew individuals, families, even nations. So when we talk about being captivated by the gospel around here at Faith Community Church, that's a part of what we mean. That the church has been entrusted with a message that is able to do what nothing else in the world can do. So this, this week, you know, many things happened this week, but at, at least this week was a reminder to me that there are things in the human heart, there are problems in the human heart that nothing in the world can touch. And we've been entrusted with a message whose promise is that it, if you will proclaim and teach and practice this, you will see it bear fruit in individuals and families, even in nations. And so that's what we've been talking about in this series. And today we're going to be talking about, well, how does the grace of God work on us? Does that make sense? So if redemption, forgiveness, justification, adoption, if these are so great, well, how do we enter into these things? How is it that God draws people in? And it's important to talk about it for two reasons. First of all, so you'd recognize when it's happening. 
So some of you are here, you're just checking things out. I would love for you to recognize when the grace of God is going to work on you. By the way, if you're here, it probably is already, okay? The second, though, is that everyone here has people in their lives, people they love, that you are waiting for and longing for to know the Lord. And I I want you to know how to pray better. Pray gooder. Is that good English? What's the word? I want you to pray better, okay? And to do that, we're going to look at at a story in 2 Kings chapter 5, page 311, okay? It's a little bit long, but all the stories in the Old Testament are long, so just bear with me. All right, here we go. 2 Kings 5.1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he's making a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So Naaman went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. We're actually going to stop there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This story is about 850 years before the birth of Jesus. And if you're going to feel all the feels, if you're going to feel the way you're supposed to feel when you read this story, you need to understand the deep disdain that existed between Syria 
and Samaria, or Syria and Israel. Syria sat on Israel's, uh, mostly their eastern border, actually the Jordan River that's mentioned in the story, that was the border between Syria and Israel. And they were uh, on again, off again frenemies. You know what I mean by frenemies? Friends when they needed help from each other, but mostly things were just bad. And uh, Syria had the upper hand in this relationship. They were bigger, stronger, richer, more powerful. And at this time, Israel is in decline. So it's a, a completely unexpected story, completely, that a, that a general from the nation of Syria would cross the border and seek help from the God of Israel, a weaker nation, is unexpected. But that he would actually receive it, that he would actually get help from the God of Israel and get it in such a, a dramatic fashion, and he's so obviously held up to us as a, as a picture, uh, an example of redemption that changes your whole life while Israel is sliding into spiritual darkness is really, really hard to swallow. Okay, to give you an idea of how much this stung, 800 years later, Luke chapter 4, Jesus is, is teaching about Israel's spiritual apathy, and he mentions this story. He says, you know, in, in Elisha's time, there were lots of lepers in Israel, but only Naaman the Syrian was cured. And it's 800 years later, it stings so bad, it says everyone in the synagogue was filled with wrath, and they tried to kill him for it. Okay, so if, if uh, I need you to get in touch right now with how angry you should be about this story, okay? You should be incensed on some level. Why is it so scandalous? Because, okay, so First and Second Kings in the Old Testament are the, are the story of Israel's golden age under Solomon, and then it, this descent into the worship of other gods. It's called idolatry. Worshiping all these other gods, Israel just never managed to really completely love God in a faithful way. So these books are a cautionary tale about what half-hearted devotion to God looks like and where it will lead you. Throughout First and Second Kings, the people of Israel go back and forth between worshiping the gods of their neighbors and worshiping the true God. They, they want, tell me when this starts to sound familiar, by the way, okay? They want to be God's special covenant people. They want to have this special relationship with God. They also want to be just like their neighbors. And they want to worship all these other gods, and they want to be in control of their own lives. Does that sound familiar yet? Okay. That is exactly the kind of religious context that we live in right now. Christianity in our context is a religion where we can afford to kind of put God on a shelf. Okay, and when we need him, usually when there's a crisis, we, get, you know, we can pull him down, say, God, we need your help. We need you to solve this problem. Help, help, help. And then when we're done, because God is merciful, he often does help us. We put him back on the shelf until there's another crisis, and then we pull him back down and so on and so forth. Well, Israel is doing the same things, and they were telling themselves, you know, it's okay. God loves us. We're his special people. So God is sending all these prophets to Israel to say, you cannot comfort yourselves with the love of God saying, yeah, okay, we're worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth and all these other gods, but we, you know, we burn offerings to God too. What's the problem here? What's the big deal? And we live in the exact same kind of context. And I don't know, you know, for, for some of us, it's, there's a resignation, right? So we've tried God, we've tried Christianity, we've tried religion, it just has not worked. 
And so we move on to something else. Or for others, there's just this apathy. You know, we have other priorities in life. We tell ourselves, God loves me. I believe in Jesus. You know, I go to church sometimes, and he's just going to have to get over it. My, my good is just going to have to be good enough here. And when we die, you know, we're just counting on, well, you know, God is going to figure it out. And that's exactly what was going on. And so 2 Kings chapter 5 that we just read together is, a, you know, at the same time, it's this word of incredible hope. Because it, it, it says to you and me, there is no one beyond the grace of God. There is no situation that the grace of God cannot reach. And at the same time, it's a, it's a wake-up call to spiritually apathetic people. Israel had all of these spiritual advantages. They were the covenant people of God. They grew up knowing about him. And they're the object of God's special attention. And they're sliding into spiritual darkness because of their half-hearted devotion. And so God draws this Syrian general of all people. He reaches a Syrian general with his mercy as if to just say, I can, you know, this is what I want from you. And since I can't get it from you, I'm going to go elsewhere. And I'm going to show you what my mercy can do and what you were really made for. There's a, now, nah, well, this is a key one. This morning we're talking about two things, okay? How the, how the grace of God draws us and why he chooses to do it that way, okay? Just those two things. How the grace of God draws us. You know, here's how you know God is doing something unique in your life or the life of someone that you love. When you begin to understand that you've got a problem at the very center of your being and neither you nor anything else in all the world can actually address that problem. You know God is doing something unique in you or in someone you love when they begin to come to grips with the fact there is something deeply wrong with them and there's nothing they or anything else in the world can do about it. Let's take a look at verse 1, okay? Naaman is the whole package, okay? It, he, if you were to look up manly man in the Syrian dictionary, you would find a picture of Naaman. He is the commander of the king's army. He was a great man with his master, meaning the king liked him. He had the king's ear. He was held in high favor by the king. He was a mighty man of valor. Another, he's a warrior. He was good at what he did for a living. What man does not want to have these things said about him? And then we see down in verse 5, he is just buku rich, too. Filthy, filthy rich. He has a huge staff that follows him around. Naaman is a big deal. But how does the verse end? Look at how, how does the verse end? But he was a leper. Now, just a reminder. This is a reminder. You can build the perfect life for yourself. You can have it all. And in the St. Croix Valley, we are building beautiful lives for ourselves. But sooner or later, you're going to have to come to grips with the fact that something is deeply wrong with you and you cannot cure it. It doesn't matter what kind of designer life you create for yourself. If God is gracious to you, sooner or later you're going to get in touch with this problem because step one in being drawn by the grace of God 
is recognizing your money, your position, your titles, your accomplishments, they cannot heal this problem in you. Leprosy was a bad way to die, a really bad way. It took a long time. There was no escaping it once you had it. And it's a great picture of what the Bible calls sin. Okay, this is the fatal flaw at the heart of every human being. It eats you, just, just like leprosy, sin eats you, it separates you from other people, it destroys your relationships, and it destroys you one piece at a time till you're dead. And everybody has it. Everyone shares this fatal flaw. Naaman was a great man. He had everything going for him, but he was a leper. And that's all of us. Now, the thing is, I cannot convince you of that. Okay, sin is such an outmoded, outdated idea for most modern people until it isn't. Until one day you wake up and you recognize, I am not in control of my own heart. I am doing things I don't want to do. I have become something I never wanted to be. And when when you see that, that is the mercy of God at work in your life. Now, just as a bonus, real quick, here's a a bonus from uh, the scripture reading that we just did. This this doesn't often dawn on us until later, you know, after we've been walking with God for a while. But another thing this story reminds us of is that everything that we have is by the grace of God anyway. Okay, verse 1 says, Naaman was a commander of the army of the king. He was a great man with his master and in high favor. Why? Because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. The Lord gave victory to Syria. Everything that Naaman had, okay, his studly appearance, his massive bank account, his smoking hot wife, whatever it is that he had, everything that he had, I added that last part, okay. (laughs) Everything that he had was a gift of God's grace and not his own doing. And we, you know, we, you got to know that. If you get to get up tomorrow, well, you're not going to go to work tomorrow morning because it's Memorial Day, <laughs> but if you get up on Tuesday, okay, you get up on Tuesday and you're able to go to work and you're gainfully employed and you have a brain that works and your body functions in a halfway normal manner and you're able to make some bank and you've got, you've got that smoking hot wife or whatever it is that you've got. If you have a beautiful life, all of that is a, is a gift of God's grace and it may be gone by Tuesday. Just so you know, there may be a stroke waiting for you this afternoon. You don't know that. There's no way that you can know any better. Leprosy may be coming for you this week. So Naaman is coming to grips with the fact that there, I have a serious problem. Everything that I have is, it was actually a gift of God's grace this whole time, and that's the mercy of God showing itself to Naaman. Now, not only, do we, not only are we bought, brought to grips with the fact that we have this flaw and nothing we can do about it, but we also see there's nothing in the whole world. There's nothing in the world that can solve this problem either. When Naaman hears there's a prophet in Israel that can help him, what does he do? Take a look at verse 5. It says, He went down with him, taking 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. That's an enormous amount of money. He's fantastically wealthy and desperately sick. And it says, verse 6, He brought a letter from the king of Syria to the king of Samaria, which read, hey, this is my, this is my man. You cure him. Make it happen. So Naaman goes down to Syria with all of his worldly advantages that didn't do him any good in Syria. He just takes all those things and now he's taken them to a new location. And and notice he doesn't go to the prophet. 
So the servant girl says, there's a prophet in Israel. Who does he go to? He doesn't go to the prophet. He goes to the who? The king. Well, why is that? Because Naaman assumes, just like we do, Naaman assumes that the God of Israel is like the gods of all the other nations. You go to just about any university today, and they'll tell you that religion is a projection of culture. So if you're an Arab, you're a Muslim. If you're Irish, you're Catholic. If you're Japanese, you're Buddhist. Okay? Religion is an extension of the culture and the power of the nation. It's a form of social control. Uh, the priests and temples, the whole religious structure of a nation is an extension of the state. It's a way to promote unity in the nation. And often the king himself is worshipped as a deity. So Naaman's just doing what we would all do. He goes straight to the man. He goes straight to the top. He assumes the prophet, if he's worth his salt, will be on the king's payroll, just like the prophets and priests in Syria are. And he comes to the king in Samaria, and to his credit, the king of Samaria uh, gets it exactly right. He tears his robe, and he says, am I, am I God? Am I God that I can kill and make alive? He assumes, by the way, this is a ploy to start a fight. Uh, and he's saying, you have come to the one place in the whole world where the prophet is not on my payroll, where God does not work for the king, where, where the God is not just a projection of the culture, but he sits as judge and ruler over the culture. You've come to the one place in the world where God is not a projection of our hearts and our thinking. Uh, You've come to the one place where the, the prophet does not say what the king pays him to say. In fact, sometimes he's a royal pain in the butt. What Naaman needs, his money and his connections cannot get him. There is nothing in the world that can meet Naaman's need. And that's the second thing you've got to come to grips with. So if you're here this morning and you are coming to grips with how desperate your need is and you're finding that there's nothing in the world that is solving it for you, that is the grace of God. He is showing himself to you. When you get in trouble, okay, you have blown up a relationship. You are caught drunk again. You lose another job. Your finances crash. Okay, fill in the blank. When you get in trouble, what do you do? You try to fix it, right? You try to fix it. You marshal all the resources at your command, all your smarts, all your strength, and you get to work. And if God is gracious to you, it will fail. It will fail you. Because what you need, you cannot buy. And there is no place in the world you can go but God. Bonus observation, just, just looking at the king, the king is a great example of religious unbelief. This is a man who actually confesses the right thing. Am I God? He doesn't really believe it. He doesn't actually trust God. He just knows he's in trouble. And there's a world, a world, a world of difference. There's no real faith there. Compare the king of Israel with the nameless servant girl in Naaman's household. She's just uber, she's just so confident. I know a God who will fix this. Whereas the king, like, 
his brain comes unglued and he tears his clothes and, and the whole deal. There's a difference between knowing God and knowing about him. Can I just, can I speak to high school seniors real quick? So you're graduating this month, you're preparing to leave home, and you're going to pay a billion dollars to go to some school, or you're going to go to the army and let them just beat the snot out of you or something, okay? We're super excited for you, by the way. <laughs> and, and you're thinking that you're, you're thinking the goal here is to get a degree. By the way, your parents would like me to affirm that that should be done, okay? You're thinking your goal is to survive boot camp or get a job or whatever it is. Your goal is in four years that you would know the Lord while your peers are running around spouting off true things about God but do not know him, you must, you have to know him. That's your goal. Otherwise, you're going to wind up like the king. Sort of this half-hearted God. You take him off the shelf when you're in trouble, then you put him back up. God has no interest in that, okay? Now, I want you to notice uh, in the story why God does things this way. Everything that Elisha does in the story is meant to deliberately insult Naaman's pride. He shows no, like he gets this memo from the king, he does not run to the palace. That's what a good servant would do. He shows no interest in running to meet this person. He doesn't, when he shows up at Naaman's house, or Elisha's house, Elisha doesn't even come to the front door. Like that's just common courtesy 101. Even in America, you go to the front door. But Elisha doesn't even come to the door. He sends a messenger with good news. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and you'll be healed. And it's a silly thing to do. It's a humiliating thing to do. Go home. Here's the good news. Go home and on your way, stop in the muddy river you've got to cross and wash yourself not once, not twice, but seven times while your whole entourage is watching and you'll be healed. What do you think Naaman is thinking? What would you be thinking? What would you be thinking? That's stupid, right? This is stupid. This is crazy. Is it? Is it as crazy as put your whole faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone who was crucified for you 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross and you will be forgiven of sin, washed completely clean and receive eternal life? Is that crazy? Is it stupid? This is the way God has done things. And he tells us why. Because some people want wisdom, Paul says. They want deep, penetrating philosophy. Some people want magnificent shows of power. Come out and wave your hand over me and make me a Christian. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to everyone. And God has done this to deliberately insult your pride. Deliberately. And it works, by the way. Look at verse 11. It works. Naaman is really angry. He says, I thought he would come out to me. In the Hebrew, to me is in the emphatic. To me. I thought he would come out to me and wave his hand over me and call on his God. Naaman is a big deal and he knows it. He expects to be treated like a big deal. By the way, you're a big deal and you know it and you expect to be treated like a big deal too. And Elisha treats him like a leper. Who needs healing. That's how Elisha treats him. Why does he do that? Because Elisha wants to heal Naaman's real problem. The, the problem 
It is always, it is always, always that we have broken covenant with God. We are living in open rebellion against God. That is the root of every problem. In the wake of the news this week, so I, you know, the thing about these shootings is they are so complicated. I hope we could all agree on that. They're so complicated. But I just want, I just want to see a pundit get on the TV. I want to see a psychologist get on the TV and say, am I God? Am I God that I could predict who's going to do these things? I would love to see a police commissioner get on TV and say, how are we supposed to know when these things are going to happen? Are we God? Because the, the mess that what's been entrusted to the church is the one thing that is able to actually address the root, root issue. When Elisha reaches out to the king, he doesn't say, hey, send this guy to my house and he'll know there's a miracle worker in Israel. He'll know there's a faith healer in Israel. He says, you send him down here and he'll know there's a prophet in Israel. A prophet speaks the word of God. What Naaman needs most isn't healing. He needs the word of God. He needs to meet the true and living God. When, you know, is it Mark chapter 2? There's this group of friends that bring a paralytic friend to Jesus for healing. They actually chop a hole in the roof. You remember the story? They let this paralytic down into Jesus' midst. And what does Jesus do? Your sins are forgiven. And his friends are like, I'm sorry. We didn't just cut a hole in the roof for that. What are you talking about? But Jesus understands the real problem here. That the most important thing happening in your life is whether or not you know the living God. It's the root of all the other issues. And when the story is all over, in verse 15, Naaman, when he comes back to Elijah, he doesn't say, now I know your God is a really powerful God. Now I know that you're a really powerful magician. What does he say? He says, I know, now I know. There is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. It's a staggering confession for a Syrian, a polytheist, to say, now I know there's no God in all the earth. And then he asks for a load of Israel, you know, Jewish dirt to, to carry back to his homeland because he only wants to worship the one true God now. He doesn't say, your God is more powerful than my God. He says, there is no other God. And that's another mark of a genuine work of God's grace. When you, when you come to the place where you recognize, I I'm not going to worship my career anymore. I'm not going to worship my freedom. I'm not going to worship my pleasures. I'm not going to worship money. And, oh, hey, and I believe in Jesus too, and I go to church every once in a while. This is what spiritual renewal looks like. There is no God in all the, other, in all the world but Israel. And I am completely satisfied in him. There, there is nothing. I have found the one I was made for. If you ever get to that place, that is the grace of God. Why does Elisha treat Naaman this way? Why does God treat us this way? Because our problem is deeper than we know. And our problem is always that we need to be restored to a relationship with the living God. Now the hardest part of what Elisha is teaching this man and what he's teaching us, we're going to we'll, we'll wrap up with this, is that this is not for the powerful. Your, your money and your status and your connections, they cannot help you here. Salvation is all of grace and it belongs to the humble, to the repentant heart. 
when Naaman says, I thought you were going to come out to me and wave your hands over me, you know, and call on your God and stuff like that. There's none of that. Elijah, there's, there's no display of Elijah's power. He's not even there when Naaman is healed. He wants, he wants everything that happens to, for it to be really clear that this is the work of the one true God and the one true God alone. It's just like the New Testament where, where we're told, you know, Paul does his ministry in such a way to leave no doubt that salvation is of the Lord and from him alone. When Naaman turns away angry, his servants, nameless servants again, come to him and they basically say, hey, look, if, if he told you to go do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? Like if he'd come to you and said, I want a twig from the broom of the wicked witch of the West, you'd have said, okay, yes, finally. Something I can, there, here's a deed worthy of my strength and my valor. This is a God that I can believe in. This is a healing that I can earn for myself. But instead it's dip in the water seven times. Anybody can do that. Child can do that. A lame person can do that. A, a paraplegic can do that with help. An old person can do that. A, a prostitute can do that. A leper can do that. He's, he's saying, are you really saying that there's no difference between me and those people? I mean, does God have no standards at all? Does God have no standards at all? And the answer is absolutely he does. You have to have need. You have to have need. If you're going to come to God, you have to come with nothing but need. And that's the invitation. That's the standard. There is no sickness too deep for the gospel to cure. There is no person out of his reach. There is no situation out of his reach. No community, no nation beyond the reach of the grace of God. What if we really believed this, by the way? What if as a church we really believed this? Number one, we would live and pray as though no one were beyond reach. We would live and pray knowing that if the grace of God is able to reach us, it can reach anyone in any situation. That there's nothing else in the world that can meet this person's need. Like, what we would be praying for are the things we see in this story. God, would you bring my child to the end of himself, please? God, would you bring my child to the place where he understands there is nothing he's depending on right now that can meet his need? Some of you have children whose lives are blowing up right now. It may be because you prayed for that. That is your fault, okay, <laughs> to some degree. And also, we would, we would celebrate different things together. What we would be watching for and waiting for are these genuine signs of real movements of God's grace in people's lives. Too often we get excited about superficial things that are not real. So as a congregation, if we really believe this, we would pray very differently, I think. And we would watch and wait to see the genuine movement of God on people's hearts. 